I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase your dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man. What is going on, everyone? Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the legendary Confessions of a Native Son. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, a Marine Corps veteran, entrepreneur, and author who enjoys thought-provoking, engaging dialogue about race, culture, and business. You know, typically in the intro of this podcast, I refer to myself as an aspiring author, but one of the things I've been practicing is positive self-talk and a positive mental attitude. And I've learned even early on through my boxing success, how I had to see myself as is. I was calling myself a national champ, telling everybody I was going to be a national champ well before I ever was. And I've learned that I've had to apply this in my personal life outside the ring as I continue to pursue publishing my first book, Confessions of a Native Son, as well as some other books on entrepreneurship for black and brown people, to be quite frank, because I want us to succeed at scale. And so one of the things I've been doing, y'all, I've been doing, I actually have a, a an accountability partner to write with, Mikoto Yoshida from episode, I think it was 30, no, 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 it was probably episode 20, Confessions of an Asian American. But Mikoto and I uh, get together and write every Tuesday and Thursday morning um, to get this, to get me writing so that I can actually start to get out some IP because that's important to me. And, you know, one of the things that I've actually thought about is, should I just drop the book altogether and only focus on the podcast? Because God knows I have enough on my plate already. But for me, the book represents an opportunity for me to really do a deep dive on some of these topics and it forces me to really explore them and articulate them in a way that I'm able to share with the world. You know, I think for me, it's probably more of a bucket list thing, not even a bucket list. It's just, it's life work. This podcast is life work to me. This is legacy work. You know, that's why I keep it going. That's why I'm so excited about what the future holds for this and the book, because, you know, I think sometimes we can get caught up in the hustle and bustle of life whether it's our jobs, our families, et cetera. But there's still these deep legacy projects that we've always wanted to accomplish. But a lot of us have never taken the necessary steps to do so. And I don't ever want to regret that. And so, you know, for me, the podcast and the book are an opportunity to truly push myself as an intellectual, as a scholar, and as someone who is really passionate about the topics that interest me and sharing them with the world. And so that's what I'm, I'm really excited about. But one of the things I want to talk about today is James Baldwin, because I'm going to share an interview he did on a 1960 TV show called The Encounter, where he discusses what it means to be black in America. And the reason I decided to, to, to run Baldwin on this podcast today is because, you know, I've been in the hustle and bustle of entrepreneurship and I love it. It's, I, it's so much fun for me, y'all. It's like, it reminds me of what it was on the come up of an amateur boxer, you know, when I was first boxing at the Naval Academy. And once it clicked in the ring for me and I figured out how to win and I started to see the ring and I started to see boxing in a completely different light, the power that I felt at that moment. Right. I still remember that just when like, you know, the first time you step inside a boxing ring, everything is crazy. You don't know what to do with your hands, et cetera. 
And then, you know, my last fight, I was like, I was like home. Every time I step inside the ring, it's like being at home. And I'm starting to feel the same thing with entrepreneurship. You know, the risk was nerve wracking at first, right? It keeps your heart pounding. You know, you're slightly overwhelming at times, but the more I do it, um, the longer I've been in it, I'm just a lot more comfortable with it. And I've started to get so much success in my business in terms of onboarding clients and everything else under the sun that it's caused me to just, you know, I'm just, I'm just excited about business and entrepreneurship. And I think it probably comes out on this podcast from a lot of the recent interviews that you've heard and uh, my other podcast, The Transition. But, you know, one of the things I've, I've noticed, too, is that a lot of my reading, right, a lot of the I've just reading so much business literature, probably too much business literature because I'm seeking. Right. I'm just trying to put this puzzle together with my business to get it to grow and scale and have it run uh, on an automatic without me. I'm not there yet, but that's why I'm always kind of diving into books, man, trying to tweak things and get things right. But one of the things that it's caused me to do, because I've been spending so much time in business literature, I haven't been given as much time to African-American history and African-American literature. And being self-aware about that, I, I was like, man, I just need to listen to some Baldwin tonight, you know, because I go on walks. I go back and forth between my home and my office. And when I'm doing these walks at night or I'm walking to get a cup of coffee, I really enjoy listening to like Baldwin and some other uh, black figures. And so I just felt like it was timely, it was just timely for me. And it was just timely for this show to just kind of, you know, insert some more, you know, voices uh, for you all to kind of hear their perspectives on uh, being black in America. And just, just, he's just an uplifting voice, right? I know Baldwin can seem very pessimistic at times, but I want to challenge you all to just really listen to him and, and hear his perspective. And one of the things that he's going to talk about today is this idea of the box that America tends to put us in as black people and the perceptions they have of us that we don't necessarily have of ourselves and how freeing it is to finally be able to define ourselves on our own terms. And that leads me to my confession, which is that I no longer run for my uniqueness. You know, I embrace it and I don't try to fit inside anyone else's box and I don't try to explain myself to anyone. I've just embraced being uniquely me. And a lot of times people come across me and they ask me what I do. And I, well, I do a bunch of things. You know, I do podcasting. I have a nonprofit that I run. I coach boxing. I do all this other stuff. And it might seem different. It might seem a lot to other people, but it's just, it's just the world I've created for myself and I enjoy it, you know? And I think it goes, it kind of complements of what Baldwin talks about. Are people so used to seeing us inside a box, Right. And society tries to put us inside a box. And I think sometimes people tend to feel depressed and they get anxiety and they get all these different things because they can't really truly express themselves. Right. They can't really be themselves. They feel suffocated. And I'm happy to say I don't I don't feel like that. Anytime there's something in my life that I'm curious about, I go and explore it. And I typically explore it through experience, through reading, through audio books. And if it's still curious after I go through the initial phase and I tend to stick with it and expand upon it. If I'm not curious about it anymore, then I kind of go on to something else. But I've created a lifestyle for me that allows me to do that. And, you know, when Baldwin talks, you know, he's talking from a time in America where, you know, segregation was still very much rampant. But he brings up he's going to bring up a good point in the sense of the challenges of what it means to be black in the north. 
And, you know, I can at least speak for myself when I was growing up, right? Being a kid growing up in East Texas, you know, I perceived, you know, racism and, you know, Jim Crow and all that kind of stuff from a Southern perspective. It never dawned on me the hell black people have faced in the North, right? And that even though the North didn't necessarily have segregation like the South, it had its own issues. And it put black people in a box in the North just like they did in the South. And as I get older, once I move to Newark and I start exploring, you know, like I say, Ralph Ellison in his book, uh, Invisible Man, James Baldwin took some African-American studies classes at Rutgers and just start to really immerse myself in the community. You know, I just became more and more aware of the challenges that black people face all across the country. Right. And that, you know, within the civil rights movement, that it wasn't necessarily this truly unified front like that were that we're told. You know, the blacks in the North were fighting their own battles that were a little bit different than those in the South. And it's just interesting to hear Baldwin talk about this on this platform, uh, The Encounter, the, the Canadian television show. And so, you know, listening to, the, to this discussion, right, it reminds me of, I don't want to say it reminds me, I just say this is like the old school podcast and they had it right when, when you could just sit out and have just good dialogue about complex issues and rather than me try to butcher and butcher Baldwin's words I want y'all to hear it from himself and I want you to just you know open your hearts and open your minds to uh, his perspective on things and I think there is a lot of overlap between what Baldwin talks about you know in 1960 with some of the issues we're still facing today in this post George Floyd era because black people are still getting put inside a box we're still getting put inside label we're still being labeled um, and it's important for us to, to view ourselves from the inside and label ourselves, right, and define ourselves rather than have others define us. And I think one of the traps, too, is, you know, sometimes black people can just get beat up so much, right? It's very challenging time economically for everyone, especially in the midst of the pandemic. And it's easy to fall into some pessimism, right? But once you kind of take ownership and take your power back, and again, define yourself and say, hey, I can basically be whatever I want to be. I can do whatever I want to do. There's all these challenges out there, whether economically, socially, et cetera. But if I can just push through that, right, and still see myself as I choose to see me, I think that's a very powerful sentiment to have. And I feel like Baldwin articulates that so well. Now, he is a bit of a, I don't want to call him a pessimist, but I do believe he, he, he does practice self-awareness because even in the interview, he's going to say, you know, he refers to the crutch that can come from being black at times and how it's important for us to, you know, recognize it as well and not let it keep us down either, you know? So I don't know. I'm going to let Baldwin do it better than I can. And uh, so without further ado, I present to you all James Baldwin and his 1960 interview with Nathan Cohen. Well, then, you are not hopeful about integration in the southern United States, even if it comes, am I right? That is not quite what I mean. Um, let me put it another way, all right? Um, in the first place, it is not a southern problem. It is a national problem. What is happening in New Orleans today began to happen over 100 years ago when in effect, the North, which was the government, having freed 
tens of thousands of illiterate black men. They made no provision for them. None whatever. None whatever. They were dumped on the body politic and no one was responsible for them. And they were, of course, immediately political and, and industrial footballs for everybody. They were everybody's target. Because, after all, they had to go to school. Now, they got to go to school after Booker T. Washington in 1895, who was the architect, really, of the separate but equal principle, said, in effect, said exactly that uh, education will not make us different Education will not make us, will not give us any desire to become equal to you. And all things um, social, we can be as separate as the fingers, and all things essential and mutual progress, we can be as one as the hand. Now, this idea was accepted by the nation, not only by the South. But the South refused to provide the Negroes with the kind of educational facilities that the North more or less made available to them. No, no this is not true either. I'm afraid that is not the way it happened. That's not the way it happened. What happened is the Negro education began, really began in the South, and is still very largely located there. There are Negro universities in the South. There are very few Negro universities in the North, because the North is technically not segregated. But it is very difficult, on the other hand, you know, to enter. I don't mean it's difficult because the law is against it, or any of these things. I mean that it's a complex of things. You grow up, I grew up in Harlem. So naturally I went to Harlem schools. Had to go to Harlem schools. There were the only schools, you know, in my neighborhood. You know? Yeah. Um, you grow up, if you're an American Negro, no matter where you live in the country, you are living in a segregated community. The South has, you know, all those things we know about in the South, and in every great northern city has its ghetto. And I know how difficult it is to get out of these ghettos because I was born in one. Well, James, are you suggesting then that... Uh in effect, officially, in the South, there is inequality and no freedom for the Negro. And unofficially, but just as effectively, there is no freedom for the Negro in the North. The terms are different, but the reality is the same. A boy in Birmingham um, is in great trouble in Birmingham. He has, in a way, one advantage, though. It's very clear in Birmingham that he can't go anywhere. A boy born in New York can go almost anywhere. Almost. Almost. This can drive you mad. This can drive you mad. You can live almost anywhere if you fight to get in. You can enter almost any nightclub. You can enter almost any bar and nothing will happen. But this almost means that there is a bar, there is a hotel, there is a doorman, there is an elevator boy, there is somebody every day. There is that one place you cannot go, which means you enter every door on edge. Now, this is not true in the South. When a, when a Negro boy goes in the Woolworths in the South, sits down, he knows very well what he's up against. He knows they don't want him there, and, he's, and the only way that he can stay there is to say, in effect, what they have said, you know, we not only are entitled to service, but we want it. Yes, but there's more and more of this going on in the South. Negro boys are going into Woolworths. They're going on buses. Not only Negro boys, Negro girls. And they're insisting on their right to sit anywhere in a bus or sit. And they're insisting on their right to sit down at the counter. They're refusing to sit in 
uh, colored waiting rooms only and bus depots and things like that, they are insisting on a change in this condition. They are indeed. What they, sorry. Well, doesn't this suggest a change and, and uh, progress in the relations and in the status of the Negro in these areas? It may or may not, may not mean that, but what it does mean, this is why the South is so panic-stricken, and essentially the country is so panic-stricken about it, it means this. The generation of boys and girls who are sitting down in those lunch counters are the first generation of Negroes in the entire history of America who were not controlled by the Americans' image of them. This is why Montgomery is so demoralized, Little Rock is so paralyzed, New Orleans, people are going mad. If you have, I was in Montgomery after the bus boycott, after, the, after, it, after it had succeeded, which outlawed segregation on the buses. Now, Montgomery is really, after all, a rather small southern town. If you can find anywhere in the deep south, Negroes the south has been saying for generations, they know. They know the Negro. You would find them in that town. There was not a Negro in that town, really, essentially, who was not working with some white man. There was really no middle class. There were no outside agitators. These people walk. These people terrified. The, t the town is still terrified. Because they don't, not, ter you know, not even on the obvious level about violence. If they're not who I thought they were, who are they? Well, who did the whites, South, Southern, and Northern, uh, Northern think the Negroes were? What is this image that you were? This is precisely about? what is so difficult to get down to. But let me put it. Let me try to put it this way. Um, what do you see? I don't know. I don't know what white people see. You know, when they look at a Negro anymore. But I do know very well. Um, that I realized when I was very young that whatever, whatever he was looking at, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. Um, it was something he was afraid of. It was something um, to which he was attracted or which he found repulsive, but it wasn't me. I was not a man. Now, this image, I don't know what this image is, but it has something to do. It has something to do, I'm convinced of this, with the Puritan God. It has something to do with a peculiar and I believe absolutely bankrupt morality under which we all are suffering. The one person who was outside this constriction in fact and historically and in life was this pagan, this black pagan. It was brought over was as brought over. Chattel. That's right. Was brought over as a chattel uh, to a to to God's country. Now, somewhere, I think, in order to deal with it all, we've got to go all the way back to the beginning and try to imagine. I don't know how. I, I don't know if this can be done, but I think we've got to try uh, what it must have been like then, because then, after all, he really was a pagan. He had nothing to do. Not only with the you know the puritanical standards of America, but with the European tradition out of which Americans came. He really was a stranger. He really he really did frighten them. He didn't, they did not know what to do with him, and they still don't. And in a way, the the sexual legends which sprung up around the figure of, of the Negro in a, in America contain somehow the key, the truth about our situation. It is still true. That the, that, the, that the question which ends the argument, stops the argument, is would you let your sister marry one? 
It is still a question to which, in effect, the country has found no answer. Do you think that there is this pretense? The, the, the thing that impresses me while I try to understand the problem of the relationship of white and Negro in the United States, which seems to me a very crucial problem indeed, is the earnest desire of what I can only call Christian thinking uh, Americans to remedy this, this terrible, enduring wrong, to find some way to make expiation, to find some way to give the Negro equality as a citizen of that country. Surely this is the real significance, for example, behind this whole struggle for integration. I That's quite agree with that. I quite agree with that. But in order for this to be achieved, there is one thing which has to be done, which is not being done. And that is this. It is not. It is not a question of giving the Negro equality. That is not really the question. The question is why you haven't. Why you haven't? Yes. Why, why doesn't he have it yet? This question is important. This question implies, how can I put this, that in order to deal with it, really deal with it, you have to first to deal with yourself. I know a great many very well-meaning and very admirable people who work, let us say, in settlement houses, all up and down, you know. Now, with very rare exceptions, they do not really make contact with the people they are trying to help precisely because they think they are trying to help them. And the problem is more crucial and more subtle than that. A Negro boy dealing with a white school teacher doesn't want to be helped that way. He wants to be accepted. He has to be accepted as a boy, as a person. As a human any, being. That's right. Before anything can be done with him. He cannot be handled as a problem. It's not a question of giving the Negro equality. It's a question of making the country grow up. Does do that I, make sense to you? Yeah, but do I draw the conclusion from this fairly, that what you're saying is that in some peculiar way, there is a need on the part of the American to feel, the white American, to feel that the Negro American is a dependent, that there is a need to put the American Negro in a place apart? Mm-hmm. That is one of the things I mean. I also mean, and I also mean to imply something else. Um... Let me put it personally, it's the safest way to put it. Um, there was something in me, for example, you know, sometime, and certainly when I was much younger, which resented the assumption on which all these things are based. It assumes that you have something I want. It somehow assumes I have not been to your wedding and haven't made my own judgments about the marriage. What makes you think, after all, I always, I've often felt like saying, that I want to get into the white man's world. Look at it. But you Look are part of that world. Oh, of course. Everyone is. There's no way I know. But, but I'm trying to point out this, that um, there, is, there really isn't on the basis of it. Just looking at the evidence. Any reason for white people to assume the Negroes want to be like them. In fact, on the basis of the evidence, one would conclude that anybody in his right mind would do his best not to become like well, that. Well, the situation has changed in this respect, surely. That whereas before, uh, your 
American Negro depended on the NCAAP. NAACP. I'm sorry, NAACP, um, to conduct legal battles for them on a very small level. And that's, no, that's much more complex than that. Well, if I may just finish this point. Whereas before he depended upon that kind of organization, or he accepted the Booker T. Washington proposition to meet equal but separate facilities, and I will be happy today, he will not accept. Cannot. Cannot accept that. Cannot. Isn't this a qualitative change in the entire situation? Yes, but you must remember what I'm, what I, what I'm, trying, to, what I'm trying to convey. Because I'm not arguing that the situation has changed. I'm not even arguing you know, that, that progress has been made. I'm not questioning the goodwill you know, of the people who are doing it or helping to do it. This is not the question. What I'm trying to get at is this. All right, all right, all right, that's true. But you, oneself, 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 the boy, the girl, no is in fact living in a house that he can't move out of because he's black. But there is surely an end to these uh, wretched and miserable and degrading stereotypes uh, that I was brought up on as a white person, and all of us were brought up on our white, the, the Stephen Fetchets, the Bojangles Robinsons, the Aunt Jemimas, all these... The Octavius Roy Cohn stories and all the rest this of is all in, this is gone. This is incontestable. But what has come to take its place is not truer. It is still an image which is still designed not to reveal the truth, but to hide it. A Belafonte, a James Baldwin, a Ralph Ellison, well, a Lorraine Hansberry are not closer to revealing the truth? Well, now, Ralph and Lorraine and myself are not performers. All right, let's drop Belafonte. Let's move into the world of letters. All right, all right. But before we drop Belafonte, let me say this. Harry, you know, is also, I think, you know, a, a very, uh, obviously, you know, one of the most talented people around. And um, knows exactly what he's doing. And he's great, and he's very important. He's, he's even very important from the, from the point of view of morale building among Negro kids. He's very important. And yet, and yet, Harry, I have a feeling, must work within the psychological, emotional framework of the country. Now, you cannot be Belafonte and not know, after all, why people come to see you, you know, and not know, you know what it really is that's happening between you and your audience. But if we examine, and I think later on we should do that, try to, what is really happening, I think we will find that, um, again, the image has not changed. In some way, um, it, it is not that Belafonte is, it is not so much that, this particular man is being accepted, though this is true, but what is really crucial is that something else, and something in the white world, I mean, has failed. You see what I mean? Yeah, I follow that. All right, then how about our, how about our writers? Ralph, Lorraine, I. What one's trying to do, and um, the reason Lorraine's play is really important, the reason, you know, that Invisible Man is such an important achievement, is because it is the first time, almost the first time, I think probably the very first time, that a Negro has managed to achieve, to step out of the image, um, out of the cage? Out of the cage, really. Now, let's compare this. This is um, arbitrary. I don't mean to be unjust, but I think that we can do it this way. I admire, I admire you know, the late Richard Wright very much, but there at the heart of Native Son, which is a very important novel, 
the, the central figure, Bigotabas, is really a white man's idea of Negro. Now, because after all, what does happen is that the Negro takes the image which he's offered and believes it himself. No. Um, now, what Ralph did in Invisible Man was very, very different. It was very, very different. And superficially, perhaps, you know, uh, not the novels may seem to have a great deal in common, but the great break between them is that Ralph dealt with his people and this boy from the inside and was no longer being described in any way, whatever, really, by other people, but was imposing his definition of himself on the world. For years, for years and for years, for, well, all the time we know about, really, all the time that matters to us, Negroes, black men, had been described by white people. Um, in order for the Negro slave to become uh, an American, he had to accept all the definitions which were offered him. The language, the psychology, the theology, the morals, everything. He was defining himself in terms of someone else's definition. It is very important when the day comes, and instead of being defined by others, you are able to define yourself and the threat, which is always what is felt by the people who have been describing you, is that if you can describe yourself, then you can describe them. And if you can describe them, what will you say? And in the case of the American Negro describing uh, white people, one can see, I think, how great the panic might be. Well, what would I have to say about... Um, American liberalism. Yes, what would I really have to say about... Um, if I were going to describe... I can't name names, so... A hypothetical white liberal. Well, I know what he thinks he's doing. But what he's mainly doing is something which demands my tacit cooperation. He, I have to agree that I am what he says I am in order for us to have any dialogue at all. Now, if I don't agree that uh, he is what he, what, what, what he, what he, you know, what I, I am what he thinks I am, then inevitably, and I, you know, one sees this at once in the face of the people you're, you're, you're dealing with, it means that if I'm not what he takes me to be, that means I have, a, I have a standard of judgment, which is not his, which I may then be using to judge him. And which may cut the ground from under, under all the standards. All the other, yeah, exactly. Do you regard this as a, as a distinct threat to the, what shall I call it, the, uh, the sense of spiritual security? I think American, I think the American essentially, I don't think this, I know this. Yes. This is a threat to the American personality as it has so far been constituted. It's a threat to every, it is a threat to their definition of the world. It is a, it is a threat to, their, to the way they, what they think reality is. For example, this may seem extremely far-fetched, but let's think about this for a minute. It has very often seemed to me that the American notion of the world, which makes it so simple, things are black or white, Things are good or bad, people are straight or crooked, and life is not like that. I mean, anybody who begins to grow up knows that life is not like this at all. It seems to me that it's a reflection, a direct reflection, of the effort made by the white American to keep away, to, to not be threatened 
by black people. In some way, the, the American vision of the world is all wrapped up with their vision of black men, which has to do, their, has to do with their vision of themselves. Black is evil. The saved are white. Now, there's certainly a thread which connects this reality to, uh, which it make, makes, and makes it possible for uh, the Secretary of State to say, we will not do business with the devil. You see what I mean? This, no, I'm not. I, 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 I you don't think follow I this. Follow part of let me try to do it. it let me try to do it again. Um, I was saying before that in a way, black men were very useful to the American because in a country so absolutely undefined, so amorphous, where there were no limits, no height really, and, and no depth, there was one thing of which one could be certain. One knew where one was by knowing where the Negro was. You knew that you were not on the bottom because the Negro was, the Negro was there. You knew one knows what sin is in the same way. One knows what danger is in the same way. When I say that this face is invested with all the vices and all the sanctities, you know, which um, people are afraid, that is one of the things I meant. Now, this implies a vision of oneself, it seems to me, and a vision of the world which doesn't stop at the American borders. It is also the way America deals with the world. And the world is much more complex than black or white. Let me ask you this question, then, Jim, because it seems to me we've been moving in the direction of it and then retreating at its implications. If such issues as the fight for desegregation and integration are mere manifestations of what is really a subterranean and basic conflict, how is this conflict going to be met? On what level is it going to be met? How is it going to be resolved? If all of these steps are mere incidental steps rather than essential ones. Now, all of these steps, um, I don't think any of these steps can be called incidental. Um, they're all essential. They are steps in this direction, though. What has to happen? I think Martin Luther King, in some mysterious way, has really knows what it is. What he has done, it seems to me, for the first time, is to make that problem, the Negro problem, a matter of moral self-examination. He has made it more difficult than it was before to evade it by good works. The internal revolution that he has begun in must, cannot possibly, avoid moving directly into the heart of the people who make up America. I mean, I, I mean that the problem will never be resolved until everybody in the country in some way, I know how impossible it sounds, however, this is what has to happen, is able, is somehow able to do without this crutch. Because the other side of the difficulty and it's very difficult. I have, I have said, in effect, that white men must give up what is, in effect, a crutch. So must I. This is entirely true. There is something very safe about being a Negro in a way because ah, you can blame anything that happens to you on it. 
And this is the worst thing about being a Negro. Quite apart now from New Orleans, race rides, lynchings, etc., etc. The worst thing about it is at one point somewhere in yourself, you have to realize that all right, you are a Negro and this is all true, but before that you are a man and your life is in your hands. You are responsible for what happens to you. You cannot blame anybody for it. There is no point. There is no one to blame. You speak about this radical reconstitution of the entire social fabric of a country, of a, re, of, a, of a more than reorientation of a relationship between two peoples existing in this one country it must become one inevitably. You suggest that the difficulties standing in the way of it are enormous, even though some important but not vastly significant progress has been made. Let me ask you a direct question. Under the circumstances in your heart, aren't you basically very pessimistic about the future for the Negro in the United States? No. No? No. I'm not a pessimist. Um, pessimists, I've noticed, are silent. Um, I'm not bitter either, for example. People who are bitter are silent, too. Um, no, I'm not pessimistic. I don't know how this will be achieved, but it must be achieved. So we will have to do it. Why must it be achieved? Why cannot the situation simply continue in an easy and perhaps bettering in some ways truce? It will not. It will not. It will not. It cannot. It cannot. The country is honeycombed with ghettos. People are starving and dying and growing bitter and, and turning into madmen and going into narcotic wards every day in those ghettos all over the country. That's in the north. And the south, the south is in a tremendous kind of storm. It, it is not possible for it to remain as it is. It is just not, no, not even a question. The pressures are too great. Hypothetically, if Birmingham, oh Lord, I shouldn't have mentioned Alabama, still, let us say, Birmingham. If it should blow up tomorrow, it will not only be Birmingham. It won't only, the chain reaction won't spread from Birmingham to Atlanta to Nashville. It will spread from Birmingham to Nashville to Atlanta to New York to Detroit to Boston. It doesn't stop at the Mason-Dixon line. Black man, and chase our trees, black man, and get that